You are listening to the District Church Podcast. To learn more about us, find us online at districtchurch.org. Well, here we are on the hinge of a a new year. And uh, as a church, you're also on the hinge of your study in the book of Ephesians, uh, known as the Queen of the Epistles. Having completed chapters 1 to 3, and you're about to attend to chapters 4 to 6. Pastor Aaron has uh, asked me to give a sort of half-time chat uh, between these two halves. So welcome to the locker room uh, as we we sort of do a retrospective uh, on the first half and a prospective on the upcoming half. You know, there are so many ways uh, to present the book of Ephesians, and it's been presented to you these first three chapters in such a godly and masterly and pastoral way. I'm going to summarize it boldly and bravely, um, and frankly a little nervously, uh, in five sections. So without any more ado, can we go for it? Let's go. First section, after his, his wonderful, you know, grace and peace greeting as always, chapter 1 verse 3 to chapter 2 verse 10, I'm going to call new purposes. Paul is presenting the new purposes in God. And he He's so logical and ordered. There is structure in in what Paul writes. And there are sort of three components of this new purpose section. First of all, he rejoices. Secondly, he requests. And thirdly, he reviews. The rejoice section is chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 14. And he rejoices over three particular things. First, he rejoices over the source of the gospel which is the Father's work. It was the Father, listen to the verbs, who blessed, chose, predestined, gave, lavished, made known, purposed. So God the Father is the subject of all the verbs, and He is the one who's related to all the nouns that He uses. Grace, will, love, and purpose. All of these belong to Him. The Father's election and the Father's adoption of us are emphasized. Then he rejoices over the setting of the gospel, and that is in the Son's work, Jesus, that has brought us redemption with all of its benefits of forgiveness and deliverance, knowledge, unity, and inheritance, but he's also brought us with that redemption a revelation because now we can understand God's plan and God's purposes with a wisdom to both perceive and an understanding to practice. And the third element of this rejoicing section, this is all the content of his praise. This is just worship. Worship has content, by the way, doesn't it? (laughs) He then rejoices over what he calls the seal, the seal of the gospel. This is Trinitarian. It's Father, Son, and now he deals with the Spirit, the Spirit's work, which is the promise that gives us the assurance that we would be received. It is the seal that is the assurance we have received, and he calls it the deposit that is the assurance that we will receive much more. The second section of this is Paul requests. 115 to verse 23, and as always you know with Paul, Praise and prayer are never far apart. 
And he's actually really encouraged by these Ephesians because they have passed two acid tests, their faith in Christ and their love for other believers. In other words, he's, he's pastorally loving the relationship between their private profession and their public practice. And Paul now prays, quote, that they may know. Know what? And he gives us three specific things. This is almost biblical alliteration here. The guarantee of hope, the glory of our inheritance, and the greatness of his power. And, and then he requests that these Ephesians will be utterly convinced by, by what we could probably call power proofs. Three non-negotiable power proofs all about Jesus. His resurrection from the dead, his enthronement over evil, and his headship over the church. Which leads him into the final section where he, he does a review. And that is chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. He does a, a review, an overview of first who they once were. And he, he deals with those three horrendous uh, descriptors of hopelessness, death, slavery, and condemnation. But then he does a review of who they are now and what God has done for them by, again, these little trios, enlivening them, making them alive with Christ, exalting them, raising them with Christ, and enthroning them, seating them with Christ. And then he, he sort of rounds it all up by giving a review of why God has done this. And there's, an, again, another little triptych here. First, to make them signposts that show forth God. And then there's an artistic word used to make them signed portraits. I love that. Signed portraits that are his workmanship. And then to give them assignments to do his good works. That's the first section of Ephesians. The new purposes of God. The second section, we're just going to call new persons. Chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 21, to the uh, end of the chapter that Pastor Kevin uh, read. Now, again, methodically and logically, Paul brilliantly summarizes and charts the process of God's redeeming work in us. And he begins at the beginning, formally. He talks about in which you used to live, or remember that formally. He engages here in holy recollection, and the key words are alienation and banished. This period is all about our hostility. Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, without hope, without God. Those are the phrases that just pile on, one on top of the other. But hallelujah, formally is followed by but now, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This, this is reconciliation. And the key words in this part are access and brought near. Hallelujah. In other words, 
This is all about the response of Christ's humility to my hostility. Blood is shed, and those far away are made nigh, barriers are smashed, and those divided are made one. But it doesn't end there. Formally, but now, and where to from here? Consequently, 2.19, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. Key words, acceptance, and built together. This is, frankly, this is all about the recovery of my humanity. A citizen in the kingdom, a sibling in a household, I'm also a stone in a building. And this is so wonderful and so brilliant that Paul goes back to praise. And he ends this section with the doxology that Pastor Kevin wrote, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations and forever and ever. I love Paul, the section that just preceded that on asking more than we can imagine and all the rest of it. His grammar just goes into the stratosphere. I mean, it's like subordinate clause after subordinate clause. Where do you put a period when you're worshiping God for his greatness and his goodness? So you might be amazed. I'm just going to check. Wow. Um, there's the summary of the first half of Ephesians. I know you wish that the pastors were able to do it as quickly as that. <laughs> but that's the summary of the first half. It's all about new persons, uh, the new uh, purposes of God for our lives through Christ, producing new persons. Now, remember I said we're in the locker room. We're getting ready now for the second half. That you are going to all be taking hold of as you journey into 2024. So what's ahead? What awaits you all? Third section is chapter 4, verse 1, to chapter 5, verse 21. I'm going to call this new principles. If chapters 1 to 3 were all about the doctrine, then chapters 4 to 6 are all about our Christian duty in response to that truth. All doctrine has a personal and ethical application. And Paul immediately teaches about the three constituent elements of Christian maturity that are unity, ministry, and purity. He talks about the relationship between our calling, our character, and our conduct. He shows how ministry can only, in fact, be effective if it's the fruit of unity. And he then goes into one of his little triptychs, his trios, as he exhorts us to be graced with gifts, grounded in truth, and growing in love. And he goes on, he gives examples of the virtues that have replaced the vices. He highlights a new purity in communication, in sexuality, as well as a new productivity in what we do with our lives and our time in response to God's truth. And then he shows us, he's a good pastor, Paul. He shows us how to assess present patterns of behavior, godly. Secondly, how to abandon unrighteous practices. And thirdly, how to adopt righteous ones. And after identifying common areas of unholiness, and it's interesting, particularly the sin that comes out of the mouth, the final part of this section 
is a tremendous list of four specific helps to holiness that you're going to love when you get into this. 2024, a holy year, helps to holiness. And he, it's, he's talking about uh, how to live under the right influence of the Holy Spirit. Four things he mentions. The fact of judgment, uh, seldom taught. The fact of judgment, the fruit of light. He talks about the proving and reproving, the exposing and the attracting. The function of wisdom, redeeming time, understanding God's will, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Fact of judgment, fruit of light, function of wisdom, fullness of the Holy Spirit. Which takes us to the next section, section four, which I'm just going to call new partnerships. You'll be looking at new partnerships. Because as I already said, he's a good pastor. Paul is thinking about some of the practical relational contexts that these truths have to be personally and practically lived out in. So he shows us how the gospel makes for new relationships, and he chooses three major areas. He, he deals with uh, marriage, husband and wife, chapter 5, 22, uh, 33. And it, it's, it, it's, it's not quite right to think, oh, you know, he's, he's dealing with the marriage and he's, he's, he's not, uh, not dealing with the singles. I, I happen as a pastor to uh, have committed to do premarital counseling before people are even dating. Because the fact is, it's God's truth for personal life and discipleship. So it's not stipulated specifically for, oh, and now you're moving into an area of discipleship, which you... Parents and children, second area. And the third area is employer and employee in chapter 6, 5 to 9. And he talks here in this context of new partnerships, not about our rights, but about our responsibilities. All of which, how's the overview of Ephesians going? Are we, are we getting through this? All of which brings us to the word that every person in church longs to hear every Sunday morning, finally. Okay, chapter 6, verse 10. Finally. Why? Because if all the preceding teaching about new purposes, new persons, new principles, new partnerships, if this describes your beliefs and behaviors, your desires and your determinations, then you will know what Paul takes absolutely for granted, which is going to be the need for new protection. Paul knew that the call of Christ is a call to arms, that there are no blessings without battles, that disciplined obedience is not a life of quiet ease, but engagement in what sometimes feels like hand-to-hand -hand fighting, doesn't it? We do not live out our testimony in a vacuum. We are camped, uh, in sort of Lewis's image, in hostile territory. So, Spiritual conflict and spiritual warfare is just a fact of all spiritual life. And I'll just, I'll just say in parenthesis as a pastor, I'm as, I'm as concerned for the spiritual health of those who are oblivious to this as I am about those who give the impression that they have the secret knowledge that gives them mastery in this battle. The ignorance that results from captivity to sin can be as dangerous as the battle knowledge that can lead to pride. Now, when it comes to this 
subject matter, this section of Ephesians when you get to it, um, we're, we're dealing with extremes. Uh, there are those, of course, who do not believe in the biblical teaching that evil has a personal source, namely Satan. And there are those who do believe, and this is quite um, prolific in our culture and generation, who add to the teaching of Scripture by producing hierarchies of demons uh, and systems and structures and strategies that though they may be helpfully descriptive in some situations, cannot be elevated to a doctrinal status unsupported by clear and authoritative scriptural backing. Now, Paul has just delivered a deposit of incredible teaching in the second half of Ephesians that you're getting into about practical holiness. But as good as it is, it is incomplete without this final section of the letter. I want to emphasize that because so often Ephesians 6, it's dealt with in a spiritual warfare course, you know, the armor of God and all the rest of it, and it's never dealt with in context. This chapter on warfare has a context. It's finally in relation to everything that has just been taught. He's already clearly emphasized our conflict with the world and the flesh, with the old nature, and with the enemy within. But any teaching on holiness or sanctification that either ignores, uh, marginalizes, uh, or denies the reality of a personal devil or of the demonic, of the principalities and powers, is rankly unscriptural. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, who I had the privilege as a boy of uh, sitting under his ministry, he's observed, quote, much teaching concerning holiness and sanctification never even mentions the devil and these powers. I've analyzed scores of discipleship courses that don't even deal or touch upon these issues, which means what will happen is what we are saying about discipleship will end up being more about behavior than it actually is about belief. Now, we all agree, don't we, that holiness does not go unopposed. Paul knew that. And so fundamental to our understanding of the Holy Spirit is an awareness of the other powers and spirits that it opposes. I, I think you can argue in many ways we've domesticated the Holy Spirit. We've done it in our culture in the United States to make us more prosperous or happier or more whole on our preferred functional terms. It's interesting looking back in other centuries, from the 1880s onwards, it's been observed that there were very few books printed, Christian books printed, dealing with these matters. There were lots of books and works on abiding, however. Now look, is that a truth that needs to be taught and practiced? Absolutely. But we make a big mistake if we separate resting from resisting. It's not an either or. It is always a both and. So Paul is clear with the Ephesians after all his teaching that the problem is not only that which assails from within that he's dealt with previously, but what assaults us from without. And this truth has been denied. We, we are in a culture that is den denied. It's denied equally by modern psychology as by, may, this may surprise you, as by the uh, so-called moral majority. Judeo-Christian values are all very well and good. 
but they can be presented on the basis of natural law. The issue is not one of natural behavior, but supernatural change, which is why you cannot legislate a redemption. And for centuries, the programs of man's philosophical and scientific endeavors has assured us we've outgrown the mythologies of both God and Satan. In our worldly wisdom, we exorcised God and Satan from our reality, but in reality, we foolishly ensnared ourselves ever deeper in the domain of the demonic. You know, ironically, the context in which we're living in, never in the history of culture has a generation so brazenly, uh, so unconcernedly, resurrected the gods of the old pagan pantheons. Never has the political world been so dominated by the demons of blood, of nation, of soil, of sex. Paul in Ephesians has presented God's plan to use John Stott's phrase to create a new society. The devil and his cohorts will ever seek to destroy it. Paul has shown that God has broken the wall of hostility. The devil will seek to rebuild it. Paul has shown God's design for purity and for peace. The devil will promote sin and discord. Finally, this isn't an afterthought. Oh, one last point. Ah, by the way, what it means actually, you could translate it as henceforward. In other words, Paul is saying, given all that I've said up till now, district church, given everything you've engaged up till now, for the remaining time, i.e. until Jesus comes, until the world ends, which for most of us will be experiencing our death immediately, or the end of world history, this conflict is the order of the day. And before he presents details about the enemy or about the weapons of warfare, and I'm doing an overview, so I'm going to be totally restrained in, in, in not, you know. But going into 2024, church, I at least want to drop on you in this summary three very simple things that he says. Number one, be strong. Church, in 2024, there's provision for the fight. Point number two, get secure, he says. District church, there's protection in the fight in 2024. And then he says, take your stand. We have a position in this fight in 2024. And your pastors will be exegeting on these schemes that Paul talks about here. But as you go into 2024, be alerted, be informed, uh, be aware that there are persistent ones that will follow you. Uh, I'll just, I'll throw out three of them and they will exegete it. Deceptions, deceptions. Satan's described as the one in Revelation who leads the world astray. And I, you know, you could deal with the deceptions in so many different ways. Some of them I just call concoctions. It's the admixture of the enemy. It is rife in the church right now. You know, Heresy is truth plus error equals truth. It's heresy. But we are littered with heterodoxy. A third of truth plus a quarter of a truth equals the whole truth. 
selective. And I, I've been thinking about this even in, in preparing for, uh, for today, this last day of the year, that a, I don't think I have lived in my life, and I'm, I'm not 18, but although I feel 18 on the inside. Um, <laughs> uh, thank God I'm not 18. Um, never lived through a time of apostasy like we're living through now. We're talking about the turning away from faith, either complete turning away or turning to something else. This is a real-life context. You know, the concoctions rage, the cults rage. Do yourself learn how to identify cults. There are some, uh, well, one way to identify a cult is just, what do they say about Jesus? <laughs> and another interesting one is, what, what do they say about prayer? That's a really interesting. And then the whole world of counterfeits that we deal with, the dead orthodoxies, the lifeless moralities, the liberal theologies that have agendas without atonement. And the answer, here we are at the end of this letter, the answer to the devil's wildness is the disciples' watchfulness. Be on your guard, church. Stand firm in the faith in 2024. Be men and women of courage. Be strong. So we're going to be engaging, continuing. Paul knew it for these Ephesians, deceptions. We're going to be continuing another, the other huge scheme of the enemy, temptations. I was afraid, Paul says to the Thessalonians, in some way the tempter might have tempted you. So we, we need to be biblical in our understanding. You can do worse at the beginning of this year than go back to Genesis 3 and study that initial temptation. It's all there. The enemy's purpose. He's always out through temptation to challenge the fundamentals of God's word, God's judgment, there'll be no consequences, and God's goodness. And that you can sin with safety, satisfaction, and success. That's how it goes. The enemy chooses, he wants to determine the instant of your temptation and the instrument of your temptation. And of course, we have to deal practically in our lives, often the instrument of temptation is in areas of closeness and relationship. But church, thanks to uh, Paul's teaching in Ephesians, we have uh, enough information. We have intelligence. We have battle intelligence. We are intelligence agents. And I, I describe it, we resist his AAA attack, his arguments, his attractions, and his attacks. We're at the end of the book of Ephesians, by not being ignorant of his schemes, by not giving the devil place, Ephesians 4, 7, do not give the devil a foothold, by not going unarmed, Ephesians 6, 10, put on the full armor. So we're going into, two th hey, all this stuff, the temptations, the deceptions. Uh, I, just, I just want to mention uh, another one, accusations. You know, the very word diabolos, as you know, means one who hurls a cross. So our very, the very root meaning of the diabolic is presenting this accusation, hurling a cross. And of course, uh, that was the number one issue that Jesus faced. And the work of the enemy in accusations against your life is to provoke guilt. Devil loves people feeling guilty, therefore unworthy, therefore you're immobilized. So that's why, going into 2024, armed with the, the teaching of Ephesians, we must understand the power of repentance that brings forgiveness and freedom from guilt. And this work of the Spirit that is the renewal of the mind, a reconstruction of our conscience, a re reorientation of our will, a healing of our memories. So, you, you know, I, I learn how to discern the difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accusation of the enemy. Conviction restores fellowship. Accusation destroys it. Conviction is piercing and clear. 
Accusation is nagging. Conviction provokes godly sorrow. Accusation provokes fear. Conviction still includes you in. Accusation excludes you. The fruit of conviction is yea and amen. The fruit of accusation is no and negation. And you can't end Ephesians. Paul mentions prayer five times in three verses at the end. And that's so in keeping with what we know in the New Testament of that work of the Spirit, the intercessory work of the Spirit and of Jesus himself. Who is he who condemns? Paul asks the Romans. And immediately he talks about the Jesus who intercedes for us. Now, I, I, I must say something about the hinge. So that's a sort of overview of Ephesians, I think. But there's a hinge, and Pastor Kevin finished with that verse. Chapter 4, verse 1. So having done an overview, let me just quickly point out this hinge point that, that hinges these two halves, the one you've studied, the one you're about to study. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You know, it's really hard when you're expounding to do justice to the intensity, the urgency, the sheer passion, effort, and there's a sense of haste here that's being communicated by Paul. Let's not miss this point going into the second half of Ephesians. Our understanding of holy character is utterly founded on our understanding of holy calling. We're not casually making some decisions about who we'll be or what we'll do as if these are electives that we choose. Being chosen by God settles it. It's a message uh, on, on, on its own, and your pastors will exegete it. But I will just throw out three words that describe our, our calling biblically. It's a holy calling, 2 Timothy 1.9, because Paul says the purpose of the calling is being called to live a holy life. Hebrews 3.1, it's a heavenly calling because it's absolutely fixed on a person, Jesus. It's a high calling, Philippians 3.4, because... Don't confuse calling with vocation. It's not just about your present Christian service. It's an eternal calling. It's a high calling, shooting for the prize, through the tape, forever and ever. Whoa. So just note, as you hinge here, that there are two points made, very simply, there is an argument by Paul, and there is an appeal. So, it depends what version you're reading, therefore, or in NIV it says, then. And you know the old line, whenever you see a therefore in scripture, check what it's there for. And the, these, are the, the, these are the key links. He, he is arguing. He, he's a toughie, Paul. He's just done all this, and he said, therefore, based on that, so what happens here is you need to understand that the doctrinal propositions of belief of chapters 1 to 3 are now linked with the personal practicalities of Christian life and behavior in chapters 4 to 6. The rubber of truth hits the road. Holy doctrine needs to be adorned with a holy life. Exposition gives way to exhortation. Godly explanation provokes godly experience. Believing is the ground for behaving. Am I saying it enough different ways? To... <laughs> Behavioral changes will not be successful if there's a fault in our belief. 
And it's only the acknowledgement of God's good word that results in our good works. The Spirit teaches doctrine to inform our desire. So the renewal of the mind will produce a renewal of manners. And by the way, it's not just about look to Jesus. It also means look to yourself. So in order to mature as a, as a church community, we, we, we continually need the teaching that we are receiving. And if Paul tells Timothy that the teaching is for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, then clearly it's about the needs of our character <laughs> that need to be holified, as it were. And he tells the Colossians, doesn't he, that he teaches so he may present everyone perfect in Christ. And to this end, I labor, struggling with all energy. Pray for your pastors. There is a labor in the word. A friend of my father who's a cardiologist in, in Scotland, they did a test on pastors. And they worked out that one hour of teaching, the word, when, the things you're dealing with, was equivalent to eight hours of extreme manual hard work on the effect on the heart. So pray for the heart of your pastor physically as well as, <laughs> as well as spiritually. So what are we saying? If chapters 1 to 3, are you still with me? If chapters 1 to 3 are all about how a new society is established by God, then 4 to 6 are all about how it's godly maintained by Christians. And based on the truth of chapters 1 to 3, Paul argues for application now in a worthy life. That's what you're getting into. So what are the marks of a worthy life? Well, that's what you're going to be studying with your pastors. But I'll just say this. This is a corporate word, church. This is a word to everyone in the district church. It's not just for a single member or an individual member, or maybe some members will listen or some. It's a corporate word. So you have to note that he says one another, each one. Note the order and the logic. It's this hidden integrity of character, being in love, which is then expressed through humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. It precedes any public manifestation of corporate life. You cannot assess a church just by what's visible. So after all our assessments and measurements and headcounts and surveys, which are all helpful and hopeful, what about the invisible life? What is invisible? That is the viable evidence of the character that is maturing. It's not simply based on the charisma of a Sunday service. According to Paul then here, and here you'll be exegeting it, our response to chapters 1 to 3, as we go on now, is going to be evidenced by integrity of character, by our experience of unity with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, therefore each other, Oh, I can't, well, anyway, I'll, diversity, diversity of gifts. By the way, diversity becomes division if it's not established first on that unity that he's spoken about, which results in maturity of growth. Integrity of character, unity, diversity, and maturity. He's arguing that. That's the argument. And then he finishes with the appeal as a prisoner. You know, the reference is not to get sympathy from them or shame them, but it emphasizes that the urgency is not about Paul's trials. It's about God's truth. Acknowledgement of truth demands action. Love, think, act. 
And Paul isn't satisfied with just teaching. He's longing for the fruits. Make every effort. He's demanding concern and diligence and forethought and really conscious actions to keep the unity of the Spirit. Again, your pastors will be uh, exegeting these sevenfold constituents of Trinitarian unity. But let's at least note the obvious, church. We can't create unity or organize it. We're called to guard it. It's not something achieved by us. It's achieved for us. Unity isn't ecumenical, it's theological. It's not about a common agenda, but a common agent, the Holy Spirit. It's based on the reconciliation, the new man, of chapters 1 to 3, not on conciliation. Unity is the fruit of our response, not first to each other, but to the redemption that's just been exegeted in chapters 1 to 3, about getting alone with the Father in communion and just getting along with His lovely family in community. The primary question always is not how do we get unity, how on earth did we lose it? It's about supernatural fellowship and not natural relationships. It's about holy character that manifests the holy calling. And no external church structure can survive without these internal and foundational virtues of the Spirit in its members. Let me conclude. Have I uh, time check? Okay. Overview of Ephesians. I, I, I hope I've done sort of what Pastor Aaron asked for, um, a locker room chat between the first and second halves, uh, an overview, um, a sort of word about the hinge upon which the door is swinging into the second half. But the argument and the appeal of Paul is now about what must happen now, chapters four to six. And a hinge for the door is opening to you, church. <laughs> On, we're saying this on December 31st, on the very hinge of a new year. So I'm just going to close with a personal word from the second half of Ephesians <coughs> that you're getting into. So as you enter, as we enter together as a church community, I'm so, Celia and I are so privileged to be part of this community. Heed these Ephesian words. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Because the days are evil. One of the key applications of the power of Christ's redemption that is presented in chapters 1 to 3 is right here. It's the redeeming of time. Have you discovered that the work of Christ rearranges your view of time? You shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Salvation changes our relationship of time with time, our experience of time. And, of course, everything would be bleak and hopeless, wouldn't it, if Jesus had not entered time and humanity and supremely through his resurrection broken the power of time to destroy us, namely the power of death. So the Bible talks about two kinds of people going into 2024, the wise who have an understanding of their time and their times and those who will be foolish and do not. So again, as we begin a new church year, let's heed what makes for a good beginning, the beginning of wisdom. It's going to be about restoring our past, 
Time past, as you know, has an incredible power. This is dealt with lovingly, firmly, and pastorally in our community. The power of an unredeemed, unforgiven, unrenewed, an unrestored past is active in the present. It invades present time. It seeks to rule the present at the same time that it robs the future. So as we begin a new year, is our life in right relationship to the past? And one of the powerful evidences of the Spirit's work, of course, you, we see in Joel 2.25, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. And the text refers to a variety of locusts that actually are a variety of sources of devastation that attack our lives and rob our time. The great locusts suggest the traumatic, the invasive experience of the past. The young locusts suggest the small but subversive things that affect us like the sins of youth. The swarm of locusts, the effect sometimes of an onslaught or a single experience that may last for years. We can name that locust going into 2024. And what has desecrated the past that seeks to still dominate present time and would dominate it again in the new year and therefore disrupt our experience through time passing. We have another opportunity to stop at this New Year's custom post and allow the Holy Spirit to check our baggage and just throw out everything that should not be traveling with us, that's going to impede on our experience of godly time. So too, it's going to be about restoring the past. It's going to be about redeeming the present. This is, this is the term of Ephesians. And if you read the New Testament, you'll notice when the apostles talk about time, it's all very strong and urgent. Wake up, be careful. Live your life according to the discernment of the times. Don't be like others who are asleep. Be alert, be self-controlled. The idea in Ephesians is a very important one. It's of redeeming time. It, it, literally, it's the idea of going into a marketplace and buying something back. It's buying back time. It's buying it up. It's seizing opportunity amidst op uh, opposition. It's the idea of a bargain hunter ransoming time from the bondage of evil and rescuing it from wasteful purposes. But the idea is not just negative, don't waste time. It's positive, seize the opportunity. I don't know, the word opportunity, by the way, comes from a Latin phrase, two words, ob portu. And it basically means out of port. And it's describing that moment when a ship is out there waiting for the tide so that it can go in to port. That's the opportunity. And so we're, we're, we're expecting in our redeeming of time the opportunity that we're going to be riding the currents and the tide of God's grace to this place and that place and wherever. Amen? Yeah. So are you redeeming the time? How? Going into 2024, this Ephesians word, where is time robbed and wasted and lost or surrendered or squandered for us? What is it spent on? What are the dominant objects of our focus and concern going into the new year? What are the opportunities to be seized in 2024? You know, Jonathan Edwards, as a young man, wrote, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I can. And then just finally, going into 2024, this redeeming the time, taking every opportunity, it's about remembering our end. It's about remembering where we're going. You know, the great accusation of Jerusalem by God through Jeremiah was she did not remember her end. And there are two great motivations uh, for our holy use of time in 2024 that Paul deals so strongly with in his epistles. First is the fact of judgment. 
What is it about our use of time works that will follow us? We don't want wood, hay, and stubble. And we will give an account of our time at the judgment seat of Christ. As a young man, I remember learning a poem. You probably know it. Uh, When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it might have been had he had his way. And I see how I blocked him here and I checked him there and I would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief though he loves me still. He would have me rich, but I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace. As memory runs like a haunted thing down the years that I cannot retrace. And my desolate heart will well nigh break with the tears that I cannot shed as I bury my face in my empty hands and bow my uncrowned head. Lord of the years that are left to me, I yield them to your hand. Take me, make me, mold me to the pattern thou hast planned. The fact of giving an account and judgment is one of the great motivations of holiness for Paul as is the other big one, which is the hope of heaven itself and the presence of the Lord to be with him uh, forever. And nobody spoke more about the need for this wisdom, Paul said, be wise, than Jesus himself, who put together opportunity and importunity. And as the foolish virgins found out too late, one day the door will be shut and a time will come when it is too late to do anything about it. So maybe for many of us, we, we speak in tongues a lot, Manana, 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 manana. You know, the, the, the thief that for us is the procrastination, the thief of, of time. Um, we have a necessity going into 2024 of knowing the Lord's will and doing it. And so it might be worthwhile, this Ephesians call, redeem the time. Just take a moment and check with the Lord. What's, what's on your list of the thieves? of your time. Inconvenience? It's not the time, it's never the time, it's no time, it's not a good time. Sheer sloth, indifference, indecision, indiscipline, self-consumption, or it's just time just too filled with other things. Let me just say, and this links with Ephesians 6, there is at least one person who has taken the shortness of time to heart as the great spur for action. Revelation 12, 12, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you, filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. So the increase in the intensity of evil and demonic activity, don't you think, in understanding that, that should be matched by an increase in the wise fervency of the redeemed, who as such redeem the time precisely, because these days are evil, District Church, we're called now going into 2024 to keep each other alert. Encourage one another, church, daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And today, if you hear his voice, for restoring your past, redeeming your present, remembering your end, don't harden your hearts. This makes for a wise church. (laughs) This makes for a wise generation. It'll revolutionize our church year. And if anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask God, who gives generously and graciously. Don't going into 2024 be deceived that to be challenged is to be obedient. 
that to feel regret is to be repentant, that to think about it is to know it, that to resolve is to do it. Avail yourself of this word of wisdom, particularly in Ephesians. Avail yourself of the spirit of wisdom. Avail yourself of the prayer for wisdom. Avail yourself of the teaching from Ephesians about the character and conduct and the calling that you're going to be studying that will make you wise. So, dear hearts, may the time of your life that is designated as 2024, going in thick into Ephesians, may it indeed be the time of your life, as it's marked by the restoring of your past and the redeeming of your present and the remembering of what's to come. Be right with him going into 2024. Be ready for his coming. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Enjoy the next half of Ephesians, church. Blessed New Year. Amen.